WomenX on the front lines unpacks some of the most challenging questions we face in our society. Like, what is the real science behind COVID? Why are women investing? Where are the women owners in sports? What is the connection between our ancestry and food? I would like to know those answers. We will answer all of those questions and more with women on the front lines who are working to solve these problems. Connections are core to the human experience, and conversations are where we begin to challenge our own ideas to come to new and better understanding. I'm Mary. And I'm Tiffany. And together we'll go in search of the answers that women everywhere want to know. So pull up a seat at our table and join us on Women Wednesday. And don't forget to visit our website at womenx.org and join our learning platform to delve deeper into the topics that we cover this season. Let's get educated, then get activated. Welcome back to our third COVID conversation. And I absolutely love this conversation with Dr. Janina Jeff because she is the coolest geneticist that I've ever met. Not that I've met that many geneticists, but she is incredible. And she truly is a science communicator because she is able to break down the science so that we can all understand it. I mean, wouldn't you agree, Tiffany? Definitely. That's exactly the way she describes herself, and it's perfect. When Dr. Janina breaks down the hard science, I feel like I can really tune in and understand what she's saying without getting overwhelmed with the science jargon. And I feel as though she makes it so accessible to me and everyone else, and she meets us where we're at, um, and we're able to then take what she says and make our own decisions. But I think she can introduce herself the best. I love the way she talks about her mission and work. And so let's take a listen. My name is Janina Jeff. I am a population geneticist by training. I work for a company called Illumina. We create genetic and sequencing technology. For the most part, we create the technology that's used for most of the genetic testing that happens, including genetic ancestry testing. So I actually work in the sector of Illumina that works on um, genetic ancestry testing and screening of healthy populations. In addition to my work at Illumina, I also am a science communicator or a science journalist now. I have a podcast called In Those Genes, which is a podcast that uses genetics to decode the lost histories and futures of African descendants. Typically, what we like to believe at the podcast is that genetics and science as a whole should be more accessible. And we think one way or one way to make genetics more accessible to the Black community is to use Black culture as a springboard to teach genetics. And so in our first season, we you know did this our first season was focused on genetic ancestry testing as we saw that as an entry point given the popularity around the test. In the middle of our season, COVID-19 happened. And that being an immunologist by training, I do have some epidemiology experience, but not an epidemiologist formally. And after COVID happened, you know, several people started reaching out to me, asking me, you know, simple questions around the virus and asking us to really to go deep into explaining a lot of the scientific jargon that was circulating in the news 
so that there could be a better understanding. And so during that time, I called up my, my sister friend, Dr. Blazer, and was like, hey, we need to do an episode on COVID-19. And so since the pandemic has happened, I've been really focused, uh, in addition to developing the podcast that is about genetics and not about COVID-19, including COVID-19 as a part of our platform to really educate the community and really dispel a lot of fears that our community has around COVID-19. And so using the same approach we do with our regular genetics programming, we have added COVID-19 education to that. And to that extent, we host a community cipher now every other week on Instagram Live and Clubhouse focused on COVID-19. And then weeks in between, we talk about genetics. And so I would say I'm definitely not as hands-on as the other panelists, but definitely passionate and, and well-versed in the science to talk about it. Isn't she the coolest? I mean, Dr. Jeff is able to really make science fun. And I can't wait for everybody to hear more about the genetics of COVID because, you know, I'm heading into the holidays. We're all heading into the holidays. My favorite one is coming up, Thanksgiving, because it's all about food and I love food. I'm Italian. And we're making plans for the holidays to pick up my son in England. And, you know, COVID's on the rise. And we have to go back and understand what is happening with this virus. And when I need to answer a question that I don't have answers to, I go back to the science. And Dr. Janina, Jeff, just like Dr. Blazer and Dr. Hussein, these conversations today are more relevant than I ever thought they would be. I think what's really cool um, that Dr. Janina mentioned, actually, Mary, is that the reason why we're able to follow the science over this past year since our conversation with them began is because they allowed us to understand that COVID sort of blew the medical community open and made information more accessible to us. And so once you have a base line knowledge of how the virus works and how the vaccines might work, then it's easier to find that data, find those studies, find that information, fact check them, as Dr. Janina says and encourages, but really just like follow the data for yourself and come to your own conclusions. And like you, Mary, I plan on traveling this holiday season. I'm finally going to get to see my older sister in Los Angeles. But before I went, I made sure I got the booster and my five-year-old son is now eligible to get the Pfizer vaccine and he'll be getting it on Saturday before we go. And I just wanted to make, as we mentioned last episode, a smart calculated risk, but nevertheless, it's risk, right? For us both to travel this holiday season. But I think from what understanding what Dr. Janina said really about the genetics and mutations, I'm more comfortable making that decision this year than last year. I tell people all the time, you know, when other scientists battle, like, who's better, the cell biologist or the geneticist? Or, you know, I always tell people that if you didn't have genetics, you wouldn't have any of those things, but whatever. <laughs> One of the things that was really exciting from a genetic perspective, and, and this is directly related to a lot of the work that I do, people always talk about this fear of the vaccine being developed so fast and, and how did it get a name and all this stuff. This is all due to the genetics. So very early on, 
I think at the end of January, the sequence of the full SARS-CoV-2 virus was made public. And what I saw was a huge shift. So the first thing everyone did was said, hey, let's see how closely related from a genetic perspective this new virus is to the original SARS virus. And you saw that they were quite closely, uh, quite closely connected, not close enough that you could use the same vaccines that you had developed for that virus for this one, but close enough that it wouldn't take that much to create one, which is why we saw the creation of this new virus so quickly because of all the work that was done on the original SARS. One thing that I think from a from a scientific perspective that I saw, and especially working at Illumina and seeing how our technology, which is sequencing, enabled all of this work to happen and now is enabling things like like tracing, right? For example, we also learned, I think maybe a couple of months ago that there were people who got infected with two different versions of the virus. And we can determine that all by genetic sequencing. From my perspective, in terms of the work that has been been done more recently on the scale of the research. So one thing that I saw that I'd never seen before, research was already changing. Like people, uh, scientists were being able to publish their research in a place called BioArchive, where it's pretty much like a medium, you know, anyone can post there, anyone can post their scientific findings. It's not peer reviewed. You just want to get it out there. And what you've seen is thousands of publications in the matter of months being published on COVID-19. A lot of research initiatives, especially at my, at my job at Illumina, but also a lot of academic institutions really quickly shifted from whatever they were working on to COVID-19 projects. You've seen grant opportunities. You've just seen a dump of research at a pace you have never seen before. And it's exciting because it, it shows you that science and this research can move fast. There are also some cautions around it, right? Because like I said, anyone could just publish a paper in BioArchive and it's not always scientifically reviewed. But we still see a rush in the peer-reviewed scientific journals and we've seen a huge shift. One thing that we also saw in the midst of all of this was the ugly parts of our healthcare system, right? We saw very quickly, and Dr. Blazer and I very early on, predicted that there was going to be a huge health disparity that happened. And when we saw cases progress, we now see, and it's, we now see medical racism in real time, right? We now, unfortunately, are watching the results of years of systemic racism within our healthcare system, you know, now trickling down to actual death and disproportionate deaths in people, black and brown patients. And so that has been very sad, obviously, but like I said, there has been extreme growth in the scientific community. I'm amazed at all the things that have been done. And to be honest with you, I think this research is going to continue on for the next couple of years. And so I do see a lot of hope as well and a lot changing in the way that we look at viruses and, and vaccines. You know what I love about understanding the genetic makeup of COVID is that it helps me explain some of the trends that I see. As I mentioned, we're heading over to England and we had wanted to go to Germany, but Germany's COVID cases are on the rise and they're already started canceling some major events. So we've had to change our plans. But, you know, I took a notice that we kind of mimic what happens in Europe. 
So Europe had a rise, then the U.S. had a rise, then things in Europe kind of calmed down while the U.S. was in its rise of cases. And now COVID is on the rise in Europe. And I'm wondering that in three months, are we looking at a rise in COVID cases in the U.S.? That's a really good question, Mary. I actually am noticing a trend myself that coincides with your reflection. I noticed that prior to any sort of major travel season, um, COVID seems to be more manageable. But then once the holiday travel season booms, about a three weeks to a month later, then we find ourselves in another devastating period of the pandemic. And I'm wondering, Um, much like you, if that devastating period will creep up on us after the new year, because everybody does seem to be resuming travel for Thanksgiving and the holiday season, as the data shows with flights and the amount of people that are in the airport and also the amount of people that are on the road. Rental cars are still almost, you know, obsolete. You can't get a rental car. So that tells me people are traveling for the holidays. And I wonder if early next year, late January, February, might mark yet another low point in this pandemic for us. But I'm hopeful because Dr. Nina let us know from a genetic standpoint, whether it's another Delta mutation or a completely different mutation we haven't even named yet, our vaccines and booster shots will still offer us protection because the virus isn't changing that much. So we can take comfort there, but I still think we all want to prevent another major low period. But let's take a listen to what Dr. Janina says about the genetic makeup and how viruses mutate. I think there are a couple of things to take into perspective. When we're talking about viruses and and how fast they mutate, they mutate at different rates, right? So for the flu, for example, it mutates very, very fast. With this virus, it does not mutate fast. And it also doesn't mutate in a way where you have completely different like you don't have differences in the type of virus that you will get. So for example, there has been some differences in COVID within COVID-19, but none of them change the clinical representation of COVID-19. None of them are changing anything unique enough where you would see a completely different virus or a rise of a virus. And everyone's like, well, what if it mutates? Will the vaccine still work? The way that the vaccine is being targeted, it's targeting a region of the of the virus that has not mutated, that is not changing. Uh, When we talk about mutations, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, if we talk about the differences between each other, we're 99.9% the same and there's only 0.1% of us that account for like these mutations or differences that look different between us. And so if we're thinking about the virus, it's the same thing, like in that context, there's a really small portion of it that is changing, but it's not really changing the fact that it's still SARS-CoV-2, just like us having these differences don't change the fact that we are human. And so you don't see really drastic changes with SARS-CoV-2. And also the mutation rate is a lot slower than something like the influenza virus. The first question that everyone else was asking, oh, why are we having a rise in cases? And I just want to emphasize us going through this right now is very political. There are countries who are not going through this right now. There are countries who did not have 300,000 deaths. And that's because at the very beginning, they listened to the scientists, literally listened to the scientists. And throughout, throughout, like Taiwan, for example, 
I was reading a woman's blog who went there and, you know, as soon as she arrived in the country, she had to stay locked in this hotel for two weeks. She had to be tested every day. She had to give them access to her cell phone so that they could trace her. You know, all of these things that have kept the case rate, they haven't had a case in weeks, not a single case. And they're living their lives just fine. You know, we made some really poor decisions in the beginning. That's why we see rises. We haven't socialized the importance of social distancing, given the fact that we didn't act on testing, given the fact that we didn't believe that the virus was even spreading. You know, we, we shut down probably a month too late. And by that time, it got out of control. And then we also opened up when we, you know, we had no business opening up. We haven't really confined the virus in any way. And now I saw, I, I think I saw a tweet or something on my phone. So one of the things I saw was that, um, that apparently now, you know, the Trump administration in the beginning always wanted herd immunity. And for those of you who are not familiar with herd immunity is when enough people become immune to the virus by developing, by even getting the virus or having the vaccine that you don't, you, you stop the spread of the virus. And so I personally think the reason why we're seeing the rise in cases, the reason why we've had so many deaths, the reason why all of this is happening is really just poor decisions, not listening to the science and even the way we socialize it in our mindset around it in the very beginning is really shaped what we're going through right now. We are divided as a country. And I think one of the reasons that we are so divided, one of the reasons why people don't want to believe scientists is because we've also made science and medicine an elitist thing. And elitism right now is very, you know, associated with these radical liberals, right? All of that plays a narrative of how people take and think about the virus. I don't, I don't even know if I believe that think that people really think that it's not a thing or people really think that the vaccines are, I mean, I think that that's true that a lot of people have fears about that. But I think more of the fear is that, well, why do I want to listen to these elite scientists? And we've kind of culture, we, our culture has made these things inaccessible which completely turns off the rest of the population, right? If we continue to make science and medicine, and even when we're talking about the virus, if we continue to make it inaccessible for people who are not scientists and people who are scientists only look this way and only speak this way and only have these degrees, we are excluding a lot of information and there's no trust there. That is so helpful. And it really helps me get comfort that our vaccines will protect us from another outbreak. I can't, you know, highlight enough how much at ease we can be when we're trying to follow the trends and what's happening in the science. I think more than ever before, when it's come to a major health epidemic or pandemic, having that knowledge at our fingertips have, has been really helpful. And Dr. Janina hit the nail on the head when she said that COVID blew science wide open for everybody to access. As we talked with the doctors, we are reminded that science is one element, but we are human beings and society accessing the science and really using the science to benefit the entire community is always a challenge. And we watched that immediately as the vaccines became available. And it's been a year and it's been a very interesting rollout on many levels. 
And Dr. Jeff talks a lot about some of the issues that occurred over that time period. So when we start to group people like Black and White and Asian, those categories actually are social categories, right? We've created them. They're not actual real things from a scientific perspective. I told you that the SARS virus, I told you about the genome, about the SARS-CoV-2, about SARS-CoV-2. And so we need that genome in order to build a vaccine. If we were to build a vaccine that were particularly only safe in one population and not another population, we would need to know everything about that population's genome. Like I said, all of us, we look different. This is a very beautiful Zoom full of lots of hues and beautiful faces, right? There's only 0.1% of us that's different. I would need to know the 1% that's only shared in Black women. But like I said, since that's a social category, that doesn't really pan out into just this one little place, this one little target that I can go in the lab and create a vaccine to particularly work for one person and not another person, right? When we talk about genetics, the variation is so random throughout the entire genome. We're talking about billions of like little letters that make up the genome. It would be impossible for us to create that sequence in such an organized way in the way of for a vaccine to only work for one person or another or to be formed as a bioweapon to hurt one group or another group. So when we talk about other questions that we should be asking that are not about being a black woman, or let me say this right, not about the ethnic part of being a black woman, but is more around the social political part of being a black woman, is are we looking at patient populations that we typically see with black women as a result of a lot of systemic racism within the medical system, right? Or a lot of things like capitalism that affect things like the type of diet and environments that we live in that also contribute to our health. And we're, we should be asking the question of people who present these same health conditions, who live in these same environments, is the vaccine safe for them? And I will tell you, the vaccine trials have tested a lot of these things, right? And so they've tested people who are already sick. They have tested black women. They have tested, you know, let me also say, we don't see representation that is so reflective of the actual population almost ever. So the representation in these trials really does mirror what we see in an American U.S. population in terms of diversity for the most part. And so that is really big, right? So that means that this this vaccine has been tested in Black women, it's been tested in other women, but I just want to make sure we understand that it's not about what we socialize as being a Black woman that could be the reason why something may or may not work, nor is it possible for someone to design something like that could be targeted for one group of people because these racial lines we've created, they're not real scientifically. I think the biggest mistake that we have, or I should say um, scientists and, and medical professionals who are, well, I would just say that, have, what, we, what we have been making, the mistake we've been making for a long time is not acknowledging why. Why is there mistrust? And let's educate everyone on why that has happened. I tell people all the time, let's go back to the very first time an African descendant in America had engagement with the medical community. And those two instances, scenarios were either they were being used for some type of research study 
without consent or they had to go to a doc. They were so sick that they had to go to a doctor so they could get back to work. And very recently I thought about this. I said, well, that's not so different than where we are right now. I think a lot of people think that, well, maybe not so much the research part of it, but definitely the part of I I need to go to the doctor because I'm sick. That my, my mindset and mentality has stayed with us generations and generations. And it's shaped because of our first engagement with medicine. Most black and brown people don't have the privilege of experiencing preventative care. And that is a socioeconomic issue. That is a racial issue. And so to neglect all of the history before it and to just say, well, why don't you just do this? Or why aren't you excited to take the vaccine? It's just really a negligence of black and brown people's experience. And that's the same reason why we're here, right? And so instead of trying to, you know, ask, so I hate when I see all the media that's like, well, if black people just participated in this study and there was more diversity or black people are afraid to take the vaccine is the highlight. That's, let's talk about why that is. Let's talk about the history that has form this entire thing, right? Because if you go to different parts of the world where there are black and brown people, and I'm sure you can speak to this, we don't have, the experience and the fears are completely different. And so we need to really, really address this issue first. And let's talk about all the bad things that are happening. And then once we've done that, I think the next step is we need to acknowledge the pain. We need to, you know, be very compassionate about all the things that have happened. And now we need to talk about what are the real risk and possibilities? Like we just talked about the vaccine harming a certain group. What are the real risk and possibilities that are specific to this thing that we've socialized as race? What are those things? And let's break that down and further understand it. We need to have a very honest conversation that's very transparent, that is accessible, right, for everyone to understand. And so that's how we kind of start to build trust. But I think to go back to your original question, we have to acknowledge why the lack of trust is there. We need to own it. Just like we've, a lot of people have recently started owning racism, right? Racism predates a lot of the things. Racism predates the field of genetics, right? So we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Now let's talk about what are the effects of that, right? What are the effects of that that we're seeing now? And how does that help shape this distrust? And also this idea that medicine and scientists creating this pseudoscience called race is still being practiced today in medical research. People are still publishing papers trying to find out differences between ethnic groups. And ethnicity is a culture. It is not a biological thing that we can describe, right? We haven't even gotten to the point of changing the language. We put racism into science or science was created by racist people, right? And we have this pseudoscience there, but it still is here present day. And I can even tell you as a scientist being trained, I was being trained, not even realizing that racism was embedded in a lot of the things that I was studying and a lot of the ways that I thought about these questions. And the reason, another reason why is because, you know, I'm also so socialized around race. It's hard for me to even think about a world and thinking and operate in a way where it doesn't exist. And that's unfortunate and that's sad. 
one thing that we have to continue to do because it is still happening is distinguish pseudoscience from actual science and take apart the social things that we put on top of it, right? How we've socialized science into these horrible things. There have been so many different communities, including my own, the Black community, who have had a complicated relationship with COVID, but also the vaccines and the way they were distributed. And as of early November, 67% of the U.S. population has received at least one COVID vaccine shot. So we never quite hit that initial goal of herd immunity. Another interesting stat that we came across recently was overall across 43 states, as of November 1st, 55% of Caucasian people had received at least one COVID vaccine dose, which was close to the rate for Hispanic people at 53%, but higher than the rate for Black people at 48%. And so these are the most recent numbers that we have. And that 48% shows what Dr. Janina reminded us about understanding the context of a community's relationship with science and how these conversations and discussions don't just start here with COVID. They have a deep history that we need to understand and the science community has a responsibility to rectify that. And Dr. Janina talks about what COVID meant for the Black community. There was one other stat though, Tiffany, that you shared to me that I thought was interesting. And wasn't that about the stats of the rate of vaccinations in certain states? Yeah, Mary, I think what you're alluding to is the stat that we found actually yesterday, which said that Caucasian people had a higher rate than Black people in most reporting states, except for Oregon, Alaska, Idaho, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, Washington, Louisiana, and Alabama. And I think that data is interesting because it's not necessarily what the media would portray, right? That's what I was saying. I don't think the media portrays it that way. And I was surprised to hear those facts. And I think it paints a different picture than I'm hearing, actually, in my state and in the news that I'm reading. So that was um, something I thought was a really important point to share. Looking back on our conversations with all three doctors, giving their own perspectives coming from different sections of the United States, I think the thing that sits with me the most is just that. They allowed us to be armed with the science so that we can then go out and seek our own information and begin questioning some of the headlines that we saw. And that's really powerful. I was very fearful at the beginning of COVID. I know you were too, Mary. We talked, we talk about that all the time, but I feel less fearful, not because the monster that is COVID is less scary, but I feel more agency having been armed with information and I know how to find it and how to go about making my own determinations of what's fact versus what's fiction. We want to give a special shout out to Dr. Janina Jeff once again. Please tune into her amazing podcast, In Those Genes. And we want to also send a shout out to Dr. Shara Blazer and Dr. Abby Hussein. Thank you all for sharing your knowledge and being a wealth of information and of trusted resource for Women X. We know that 
you know, our conversations in 2021 won't be the last. COVID is here to stay. But guess what? Now that we're armed with the knowledge, we can all be better agents of our own decisions and health. A special shout out to Joy Nesbitt, the artist whose music is featured in this episode. She is a talented jazz-influenced neo-soul artist from Dallas, Texas. The song we featured called Joy is from her album, Another Day in Paradise, which you can find on Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at WomenX Community for your fill of women's history and news. And if you want to help us grow, be sure to rate and review our podcast. Till next episode, consider dropping in on the next WomenX Community event. We look forward to meeting you. Be safe and see you next week.